in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In 1886, some four years into his time here and at the age of 45, the classic age for a midlife crisis, as those of you who have listened to this week's podcasts will know, my illustrious predecessor, Henry Montague Villas, turned his mind not to the purchase of a fast car, a yacht, or a younger wife, but to his legacy. His frightfully grand predecessor, the Honorable Robert Little had, after all, expanded the life of the parish considerably, and Montague Villas wanted to stamp his mark. In those halcyon days, long before 1919, when the rules for the representation of the laity ushered in parochial church councils and annual parochial church meetings and the whole glorious panoply of representative democracy in the church, in those days, decision-making was a more relaxed and confined affair, and so it was that the vicar took his plan for the addition of a new chapel in this building to the vestry. It would be, he said, a chapel of Our Lady and a fine adornment to the church. The members of the vestry shifted uncomfortably in their seats they remembered what he couldn't remember, that Little had sold the idea of the creation of St. Mary's Bourne Street, that little mission church in the slums of Pimlico, as the creation of a lady chapel for the parish, which in those days extended much further than it does today. So, they said, an appeal for funds for a second lady chapel might fall on stony ground. Ah, of course. That is indeed so, said the vicar, and returned to the vicarage and to a sleepless night, in the midst of which, at around 2 a.m., was born a brilliant idea. This new chapel would not be dedicated to Our Lady, but to St. Luke. And, of course, this was a brilliant idea. St. Luke, after all, was not only the friend and companion of St. Paul, this church's patron, but was the prolific evangelist who, writing not only the gospel account that bears his name, but also the Acts of the Apostles, is thereby responsible for the composition of over a quarter of the New Testament, 27.5% of what the Christian church would come to treasure as the good news of Jesus Christ. The dedication was agreed. Arthur Blomfield, the architect, designed and oversaw the addition of the chapel, and when it was completed structurally, Nathaniel Westlake designed a series of stained glass windows depicting the life and adventures of St. Luke and St. Paul, and G.F. Bodley decorated the chapel in his inimitable style, surmounting the whole with elaborate gilded capital L's for Luke. In a stroke of genius, the Reredos behind the new altar, also painted by Nathaniel Westlake, bore an image of the Nativity. Why? Well, because it is to St. Luke that we owe the vivid picture of the first Christmas, with ox and ass and the manger outside the shepherds on the hills above Bethlehem and the angels in the sky above. And they are there 
in glorious technicolor to this day. So, on this Sunday, which falls on the Feast of St. Luke, the 18th of October, it is doubly appropriate that we should celebrate him, evangelist, key figure in the life of our patron, St. Paul, and someone whose legacy is literally built into the stone of this church in Knightsbridge. And if you are not familiar with the Lady Chapel behind me on my left, I encourage you sometime to take time there to soak up its tranquil beauty and to offer prayer. The other thing we know about St. Luke is that he was a physician, or at least that is what we have come to call him. St. Paul describes him as hiatro in the Greek in his letter to the Colossians, and I've often found myself musing what difference it might have made to the way later baptized follower of Jesus Christ, but at that time first a physician went about thinking about the work of God, the salvation of the world, and what influence a doctor's mind might have brought to the way he wrote his gospel, someone whose first vocation was that of healing. Whereas some early Christian writers seem in their accounts of the story of Jesus Christ to see warfare and conflict or the exercise of power, a doctor, a physician, would have been used to seeing the world in a different way, in which sometimes people got better and sometimes they didn't and died, but for all of whom there were questions about well-being and thriving, and knowing peace, even at the end of life. Perhaps that's why shalom, God's peace, figures in St. Luke's writing. The idea that whatever our outward circumstances, God's peace is something that we can know. Shalom, not just the peace and silence of a holy place or a pious moment, but that deep right ordering of things where there is completeness and soundness and deep well-being. When those sent out are commanded to greet people with a greeting of peace, it is not in St. Luke's mind, I think, a cheery, peace be with you. It is the expression of a deep desire that God's shalom may be known there in encounter, in relationship, in that moment and in the person visited. God's shalom, God's peace, not ours. That is, I think, St. Luke's great insight, that the work is God's work. We are merely those who notice, who respond and collaborate and share in the work, but the work is God's, never ours. We are just co-workers, as St. Luke, perhaps following St. Paul, often said. In the gospel this morning, the apostles, the 70, are sent out not to till, to plant, to water, to tend, and then to harvest. That work has already been done by the Lord of the harvest, by God. Now all that remains is to take advantage of what has been done 
and to share gratefully in what has been done, that there might now be a plentiful harvest. We so often, don't we, in the life of the church, get it wrong. We think that it is all about us and our efforts, we who have to save the world, we who have to do it all ourselves. It is such a grandiose fantasy, isn't it? Because the world is God's, and the work of salvation, God's in Jesus Christ. And we are called not to save the world, but to rejoice and to share in work long achieved and yet still being achieved and accomplished. Hence, the invitation to notice what has been done by the Lord of the harvest, by God. I wonder if this too is the mind of the physician speaking. Because however skilled he or she may be, in the end the work of healing is mysterious and hidden. And in the end, after collaborating, we can only look and say, there, healing has taken place. How? Well, we did our bit, but it is a mystery. As with healing, so with the work of God. St. Luke's whole view about the mission of the 70, his whole view of mission is as refreshing as it is instructive. We, in our post-Victorian, post-imperial church, live often guiltily with the sense of mission that was alive among our forebears. At the time this church was being built, and still at the time when St. Luke's chapel was being added, missionaries roamed the world, forcibly converting those seen as heathen or savages to belief in Christ. Anyone not Christian was described as living in unbelief and error, and so zealous, young, smiling Christians called and commissioned by their congregations and trained in missionary colleges, took with them English hymn books, English catechisms and books of common prayer, and trampling, as we would now see it, somewhat indelicately over any native culture, converted people to full life in Jesus Christ. And I suspect that whenever we in the church now speak about mission, and evangelism, this idea lurks in our minds, an idea that sits awkwardly in our collective memory. But notice, that's not what St. Luke describes, nor what Jesus has the 70 do. They are not to go out in power, armed with catechisms and prayer books, to get people to sign up to any creed or formulary, no, they are to go out quietly into a risky world, there to share God's peace and when there is connection and opportunity to bring sight of the work of God, to rest a while and to notice that there too God's kingdom has drawn near. And importantly, if there is no connection and no reciprocity and no welcome, they're not to force anything on them, still less adopt a scorch-and-burn policy on a take-it-or-leave-nothing basis. Rather, they are to 
shake off the dust from their shoes and quietly move on, going elsewhere in the hope that there God's presence, God's kingdom may be recognized and known. It is a quiet, curious, gentle, and peaceful endeavor, this missionary work in St. Luke's mind, like the work of a doctor who notices, listens, probes, and names. And who knows, beyond the church's Victorian ideas of being a missionary, perhaps this is an appealing picture for the 21st century. There's a bit more. Not only do you not go about this work armed with words and ideas, you don't even go equipped with shoes and staffs and spare clothing. That is to say, you go in vulnerability and into dependence on others. And that too might encourage us, no? We so often feel inadequate and poorly equipped for what the church calls us to do. If only we had this or I had that, we say, then, then I could be a disciple for Jesus Christ. But here it is in black and white. Not only are we not called into the forcible conversion of people or persuading them to think or to believe anything, but only to notice the shalom of God and God's presence, and we are to do it through our own vulnerability in dependency on others. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace, as the old hymn has it. I think this is the authentic pattern for mission. And it is something that, far from being beyond us, is entirely possible for us. Because all it requires is faith and opportunity, curiosity and a willingness to trust in the moment and in God, noticing what God is already doing there we can quietly all be evangelists, all be about mission in St. Luke's view, even the shyest and the most hesitant among us. And there's one final thing. Lest we have become so focused on what St. Luke says we mustn't take with us of shoes and staff and tunic and all the paraphernalia we imagine we need both to be safe and to work with others, there is one thing, one other thing that we must take, and that is each other. Notice that as they are sent out to this work of mission, they are sent in pairs. Why? Well, with two, there is always someone to be encouraging if the other of the pair is feeling discouraged, one to keep faith if the other is dispirited, and to carry on when the other feels tempted to quit. The business of this gentle missional life can be hard, 
but it is always easier with a companion as St. Paul knew and St. Luke. This model of quiet, prayerful discipleship, noticing the presence and the work that God has done and is doing in the world in the least expected places and people, discipleship that can occur wherever and whenever there is a meeting of hearts and minds in openness, sensing the shalom of God. This is what we are called to do and to be. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.